0: Hello, and welcome back to the Observer Station. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different, so for those that don't watch the YouTubes or uh, internet videos, I'm going to be doing some commentary to comments made at the council meeting. Um, I've listened to it and found some particularly interesting comments, or comments that I thought were interesting dealing with. The salmon bycatch in the Bering Sea, mostly dealing with the BSAI Pollock Fleet or the GOA Pollock Fleet. So that's the Bering Sea, Aleutian Islands, Gulf of Alaska Pollock Fleet. Here's a little background information. So historically, the chum salmon numbers caught by the Pollock Fleet haven't been regulated and there hasn't been a cap. There may have been a solid number that they're not allowed to catch, but it's been such a large number that it's never actually been reached. I've got some numbers here for you so you can kind of get an idea as to the amount of salmon that were being caught. So in 2016, 342,000 chum salmon were caught and disposed of by the alaska pollock fleet while in 2017 that number increased to 466,000 2018 it decreased to 294,000 2019 that's 345,000 in 2020 it was 324 or 342,000 in 2021 it reached <coughs> a record peak of 545,000 chum caught and in 2022 that number decreased to 242,000. So if you look at a historic average over, you know, those short years 2016 to 2022, the number's gone up and down and up and down, but it still remained relatively high. 242,000 salmon being removed from a system sounds like a lot because it is a lot. Now, not all of these salmon are Alaskan salmon, and you may be wondering what I mean by that. So, Chum salmon in the Bering Sea, Aleutian Islands, and Gulf of Alaska don't just come from Alaskan or West Coast waters. There's also the Asia continent on the other side. Now, you may be wondering what's going on with the fish runs in these other countries. Well, it turns out that these other countries have increased the total number of chum salmon that are being released through their hatchery programs while that may not seem like a substantial thing over here in the u.s when you release an additional 43 percent of your total salmon release over the past or the, over the last three years that number does add up right now there's a total of let's see, there's with the total over three billion chum salmon being released by hatchery programs in the into the pacific ocean there is some concern that countries that are releasing more than their fair share of chum are pushing out wild chum from the U S or from other countries and causing significant impact on those salmon in the Bering Sea Aleutian Islands Gulf of Alaska and causing runs to diminish in the state of Alaska, into Canada, into the Western U S. So when it comes down to the raw numbers, About 1.5 billion chum are being released by hatcheries from Japan. So when you look at the data provided by the North Pacific Marine Fisheries Council, you can see that about 1 billion chum are being released by Russia now. This increase has happened over the past three to five years. Canada releases only about 100 million, maybe less than that, uh, chum. Each year, the U.S. releases about 700 million chum. As you can see, those are all from hatchery-specific programs. So there's a lot of hope, at least in the U.S. The idea is that if we can get wild salmon to produce their own young and maintain the numbers, that's preferred over hatchery programs because you have to sink less money into it. It's better overall for the environment, the wild fish stay healthier Um, there's a lot of benefits to wild fish over hatchery raised fish some people don't quite understand that you can see that a lot of comments coming against state departments and federal mandates for fishery hatcheries and things like that so a lot of the commentary you're going to hear are from alaska natives you're going to hear a lot from fishermen and their representatives and it's going to be dealing with capping the number of chum caught by the alaska pollock while there are still a lot of decisions to be made here in the future, a lot of information that's lacking. Everybody can agree that something needs to be done, but nobody can agree as to what need to be done. Whether it's more research or an immediate cap and then research following that is going to be up to the council. So the comments in this meeting are from the advisory panel meeting. It's not directly the council meeting that is going to be coming up this following Tuesday. So if you want to listen into that or make your own commentary, you need to do that soon. Or here are some highlights from the AP meeting that I feel really display the range of discord and conversation that is happening around this topic. The emotions do get flared pretty high. I will be playing it at the higher speed to kind of get through the comments a little faster. It's how I normally listen to my videos. I'm not trying to Say so anybody speaks to you slower, that's just how I listen to it. It helps me get through these meetings because there are a lot of time gaps. And I will be editing down the best I can to help everybody get their message across the way that I feel it is. I'll be making some comments, maybe in the middle, more at the end, probably. And if you don't want to listen to this kind of episode, sorry, but this is what I'm putting out because I think this really displays a wide range of opinions and ideas that are out there and can give you the best information to help you make informed opinions in the future because this is something that is going to impact everybody
1: uh, thank you and good morning everybody um ap um uh, this is my first time testifying before the advisory panel so i'm gonna give a brief introduction of myself just so you know who i am uh, my name is keenan sanderson i come by way of ketchikan i am 25 years old excuse me uh, i'm 25 years old um, um i am a subsistence harvester commercial fisher, former commercial fisherman of a number of different fisheries uh, and a sport fisher in a number of fisheries down in my uh, hometown of ketchikan and prince of wales island um, i hold a number of hats nowadays um, i'm the head coach for an academic team at ketchikan high school i'm the vice president for the ketchikan school board um, for the ketchikan gateway board, or school district uh, and um, the hat that i'm representing today is the uh, ketchikan United community council uh, which i represent uh north of 1800 uh tribal citizens within uh island um um, and my other qualification that i'll say uh for you guys so just so you know fully who i am i graduated from the university of alaska fairbanks in 2019 with a degree in fisheries and oceanography uh, with a number of other minors uh, with my main focus on salmon and ground fish ecology Um, i'm here obviously to testify on behalf of this really important issue of salmon bycatch um, um, in our waters around alaska um and it's obvious that it's important to a number of other people too um according to the you know website uh, you guys have uh, 145 comments on this agenda item alone um I haven't been involved with the North Pacific for very long um uh, but it is clear that to the rest of Alaskans um uh, probably even people outside of Alaska too I didn't, don't know everybody who's on there but um this is an issue that is critical to a lot of people who really rely on this resource to maintain the traditional lifestyle um and this is the same for my people in my area too um we're experiencing a lot of loss within a lot of our fish populations whether if if that's the result of bycatch um in the trawl fishery we don't know but i especially with our salmon i would wager to guess that there is a distinct possibility that is that that can happen um especially with the new river king salmon um we've had um a pretty profound fishery back when i was younger um we we were able to catch uh, at least through the sport um sector we were able to catch six king salmon a day um when i was a kid now during a good portion of the year we're not even allowed to fish anymore um it's a little bit different situation uh, compared to western alaska and their experience with the loss of king salmon and chum salmon um but as a, an indigenous person who has relied on this food since i was born it's really hard to um um just sit by idly while this is happening um so ultimately I'll, I'll, i mean i could probably talk about this um subject for hours upon hours but i i really think it's important to emphasize that a decision needs to be made sooner than later on uh, bycatch in these fisheries um, we're dealing with people, um, and I, I've never been to Western Alaska. I don't know. I've never seen their hardships firsthand, so I, I cannot really. But I know a few people who have told me stories about what has happened there. And and you guys have probably heard it plenty of times before. They don't have stores that they can go to if they aren't allowed to subsistence harvest um, fish in their rivers. Um, I'm fortunate enough in Ketchikan to have a Walmart and a Safeway um, to go to if I can't go out and catch fish, whether I'm legally allowed to or not. Um, I think it really speaks <laughs> volumes that. Um, I don't know, hold on, sorry. <laughs> Um, not a great public speaker but i have a few notes i just wanted to make sure um, that i say um no matter no matter where or why the reason these um, populations are declining whether it is uh environmental issues or overfishing in particular sectors or bycatch in the sector that we're talking about now it it doesn't really matter the point is is that there is a problem that people in western alaska are facing and something needs to be done about it and what what, what's working what is going on now isn't working at all so it looks like my time's up i have a few other things i wanted to say but i'll leave that for the council
2: Thank you, Mr. Sanderson. Do we have any? That
0: was the first first person to comment on the topic at hand, which is the chum salmon bycatch numbers. But more in general, he comments more on just total bycatch numbers. And while the pollock fleet, number wise, does pretty good when you compare percentages of fish caught, they do. It's relatively clean fishery. It's not perfect. There's a lot of pollock caught. So there's a lot of bycatch total when you compare these things in pounds. There's a couple comments asked to him, and while I don't find one of them of particular interest, this next comment I find particularly loaded and mildly offensive. Um, I'm going to play it here so you guys can make your own choices, and I'll make some comments on it afterwards.
3: Yeah, thank you, Keenan. I'm curious about your your statement, and if I misinterpreted you, please let me know. Um, but about it doesn't necessarily matter what is causing the declines. Because um, to me, I actually think that's one of the most important questions we need to answer, because if we know what the source is, then we're better able to to craft solutions to address the problem. And so I guess I just if if in your mind um, the source of of declines doesn't matter then how should we as as a panel as an advisory panel and a council try to come up with the best solutions to to you know address the issues that that we are currently facing
1: uh yes through through the chair yes that's, that's a good question and um and part of the reason why i spoke like that is just because i had a finite amount of time um it, it I, I agree it does matter um on where um the full source and, and to be honest it's not going to be a one it's not going to be one smoking gun so it's coming in from all different directions, um, at least that's based off of what I know. Um, but I, I guess what I meant by when I said that is that um, even if we know every single or whether we know or don't know where um, the problem is coming from, we know the end result of what's happening, and that is. People in Western Alaska people all over the state of Alaska don't have access to these traditional foods, we know that that is a fact. Um, it, it is still uh, well, maybe I'm, maybe i'm wrong, but it is still offered to be on why fish are not returning, but we do know that fish are not returning they're not allowed. People in Western West are not allowed to fish and harvest. And what we can do is change regulation to allow for less bycatch. We, we can do that, but I don't know. That's what, That would be my response to that.
0: So I think he does a really good job of responding to that question, which was at least to me seemed pretty pointed and accusatory. He obviously doesn't mean that the problem doesn't matter, but the point that he clarifies, and I think is pretty obvious is that he's trying to make the point that a solution needs to happen we can't live with the status quo and try to find answers and try to come up with the best single solution because it's not going to be a problem with one simple answer it's not something where we can just say okay well the chum aren't returning because they have a bad gps system and we just need to give them you know google maps instead of garmin all right here's another question asked that i think is pretty good And I really like the way that they respond to it.
4: Um, For your testimony, uh, you mentioned your background, your education um, sounds like you're pretty well versed in fisheries or at least the ecology, um, the marine ecology out there. Um, So we we get hung up a lot on the fact that there is a high abundance of Asian and Russian hatchery chum in the Bering Sea system right now. And that is mixing with the Western Alaskan chum. So have you put any thought into or kind of thought about any of those interactions and what any of these measures that have been proposed or suggested how any of those are going to play together because i think first we need to look at the, the ecosystem and how it's all mixing in the bearing Sea. so have, do you have any insight on that
1: uh through the chair if we'll just get some clarification are you basically asking whether hatcheries are doing more good than bad, or the other way around or i, I guess i'm like I, I understand there's interactions between everything in the ecosystem and ecosystem-based management In my opinion is the best type of management um for everything out there but um i guess just that clarification before i try to answer that question
5: yeah
4: thanks i'll clarify so um you're suggesting and requesting more you're suggesting a reduction in by chum in general but so we see such a high amount of non-western alaskan non-alaskan in general chum mixing with these species so if we put have you thought of the implications of if there is a reduction or a regulatory measure what all that extra non-alaskan chum is going to do in terms of competition or um how that's going to affect it from an ecological kind of perspective
1: so through the chair um, I personally so a lot, a lot of what I do just a little, I guess a little bit more background on myself and I and I'm just starting to get into this process um especially just broadening outside of my region in Southeast Alaska which is something that I've mainly focused on for most of my life because that's where I'm from um but um as somebody who's you know getting you know past the college stage and just getting into this regulatory process and that's just not with you guys it's with the federal subsistence board and board Fish and board game um, um I'm not fully aware of all the interactions and everything that goes on in the Bering Sea and Gulf of Alaska especially with the western gulf um so I don't know if I'm maybe qualify to answer that question. Um, but it's definitely a valid question. And um, it's something that we should look into. Um, but I don't know if I can say anything about that particular Fine. item.
4: Thank you. I appreciate
0: it. So with his response to this question, it begs to ask, does anybody actually know the answer to this question? So a lot of arguments being made for the commercial fishery fleet to be able to catch as many chum as they feel like. It's It is being made that their removal of hatchery fish from the Asian continent is more helpful than it is destructive to the Western Gulf Fleet because, or the West, not the Western Gulf Fleet, the Western Gulf Chum Salmon or the Western Chum Salmon. And it's hard to calculate if that's true or not. It's easy to say that, well, we're just removing competition for the salmon, but you're also removing the salmon that are trying to be protected right now that that are the species of concern and if you're removing you know out of 250,000 chum if you're removing 50,000 chum that would be normally running up these rivers and you're only removing 200,000 of these other chum is it really a better idea to be doing it that way and that's kind of the argument being made nobody knows the answer to this question i feel like this question was okay at best and loaded um, or intentionally, an intentionally asked question that they knew, I guess it were a rhetorical question. It was a rhetorical question. She knew that he didn't have the answer to this because no one has the answer to this question. This is a question that's being asked of the crabbing fleet and the longliner fleet that are catching Pacific cod. Um, I may go into post another episode like this dealing with the Alaska crab situation and what's going on there. The longliners are making the same kind of suggestion saying, hey, we're going into these crabbing areas and we're removing a predatory species from the crab, and we're I promise we're doing more good than harm to these crab. And they can make that claim, but they don't actually know the answer to that. And nobody at this time, at least as far as my knowledge goes, knows the answer to this question. So that's the end of all the questions asked to him. Keenan is a very well educated, very well-versed. Um, I do think he's a good public speaker. It's really hard not to use um and to speak in five minutes. Everybody on this has a five minute window that they're allowed to speak in and that's it. So keep that in mind for the next couple comments. Some of them go shorter and some go a little bit longer.
5: Good morning, my name is Brooke Woods. I am a tribal member from Rampart, Alaska along the Yukon River. Currently we have a US and Canada Delegations meeting for the Yukon River panel and we are trying to ensure that our salmon returns. um, are restored protected that we're meeting escapement and that our people are able to fish and we cannot do that without decisions here, I ask that you place a CAP on chum salmon. And also on King salmon so currently I don't know if you're aware of this, but the amount of bycatch that you're allowing to happen is equivalent to our escapement on the Yukon river so that should be a call to action. You are public servants, and when we ask for these requests, you have to help us to restore our salmon runs, our way of life, and our food security. Only 20% of the state is connected by road, and 95% of purchased food is imported to the state. So our tribe's ability to hunt and fish is critical. We are in a crisis. So we have a multi-species salmon crash on the Yukon River, which is unprecedented, and it's not going to get any better unless you take action. So we need a chum salmon cap. And we need no king salmon to be caught as bycatch. I often hear that we'll be shutting down the pollock industry. But that's just where you have gotten yourself without taking any action. um, Prior, you have 144 comments to take action. And I don't want you to continue to disregard the amount of bycatch because of um, other countries. It's always like you're doing us a favor by capturing these other countries' hatchery fish. But also as a public servant, as an educated person serving this AP, you have the responsibility to address those high volumes of hatchery fish through processes like this. So you have the North Pacific Anadromous Fish Commission where you can be testifying as a panel or as an individual. So it's critical that you also are a part of the process. And salmon to our people is more than just fish. it's our cultural identity. And when you look at the boarding school era, I'm gonna end here, um, when our kids were being taken away and beaten and assaulted and their language was taken away, their um, identity as indigenous people, there was a sign on the on the wall that said, kill the man or kill the Indian, save the man. And this is very similar. Our, we are nothing without our salmon. And if you don't take action, we're gonna have no salmon left. We are at 12,000 fish for escapement when it should be 50,000 on average. Um, the connection, extends beyond just catching salmon. And I did not want to be a part of this process. I'm very exhausted coming to you for years, asking for the same thing with no action. Thank you so much for letting me testify today.
0: That was a pretty emotional testimony. Now, while she says a lot of interesting things, we will be, or it's my hope to take the podcast in the direction and kind of talk about the treatment of the native people to Alaska and the Aleutian Islands more in particular, Um, she does talk about how salmon is a cultural item for them. And that is really hard to press upon people who grew up in a more Western mindset where our culture does a lot more with music. And especially here in the U S it, our culture is kind of hard to grasp while our country is relatively young in comparison, these indigenous people have been there for thousands of years. And when you start losing something relatively quick. I mean, this is a pretty short time frame. The chum numbers in the Pollock fleet started to increase around 2012, which you'll hear in a later testimony. And over the last three years, the chum salmon numbers in the western side of the state of Alaska. So this is the interior of Alaska for those that are having difficulty understanding when they're talking about a western Alaska. This is closer to the inside and the Canadian border of Alaska. That's where this issue is really being felt, because these are people, like she said, that are far away from roads. They can't just go down to the local corner mart, go grab themselves a current dog. They can't go to 7-Eleven and take advantage of their two for two, or they can't go to Mickey D's and go get themselves a Big Mac. These are people who rely on these fish to eat, to feed their families, to sustain themselves, their animals, and the means that they have to continue on. Now, some cold-hearted people out there might say, well, why don't they move? Well, they shouldn't have to. This isn't an issue that they have caused themselves. This is an issue being forced upon them by someone else, somewhere else, issues brought on by climate change, issues brought on by a number of issues, and they're asking for some solution to be brought up. They're not, they know, they know, you can hear that later on, that this is not a simple one solution problem but they want a solution to come out of this particular part of that problem and they feel frustrated and you can feel the frustrations in this testimony and the testimonies to follow.
6: Uh, I'm the co-chair for uh, Gwich'in Council International which represents all uh, Gwich'in people on international issues. Uh, our three membership bodies are the Gwich'in Tribal Council of the Northwest Territories Canada, Wetakwichin First Nation, the Yukon Territories of Canada, and the Council of Athabasca Tribal Governments uh, here in Alaska. First, uh, I want to thank you all for the time to listen. I hope that some of my comments are absorbed here. I also wanted to thank you to Dr. Strom for the presentation. I found it very informative uh very well put together and uh appreciate the work there i wanted to go over uh the meeting overview and item d1c first and suggest that the lack of coordination and communication expressed there is the standalone issue uh this advisory board the ssc and the north pacific fisheries management council as a whole share some of these cooperative deficits and siloification that is impacting alaska communities as a whole So how information is shared needs to be improved. That should be a topic of the discussion that you guys take forward from this as it was reflected in the report uh, that was provided to you all today. I was disappointed on the leading questions about climate change instead of discussing a more holistic approach to investigating what has actually occurred with salmon. Actual actionable information and interventions that will help us to restore this fishery and relieve the stress on communities across Western and interior Alaska are needed. There needs to be greater cooperation with in-river managers and indigenous communities. There needs to be greater understanding of the whole life of these species. We cannot talk about climate change and a climate salmon collapse alone by itself. We can and should talk about this as a potential causal mechanism, but there are others. The need for PSC for chub salmon, environmental impact assessments of trawling on the Bering Sea ecosystem, Perhaps understanding the impact and role of feedstocks like the sand lance and the billions of pounds of biomass that are being taken out of the salmon's economy and ecosystems annually. <clears throat> Perhaps looking at limiting the midwater trawl fishery. So we can't just say it's climate change. And we can't do anything about that while the fishery is devastated by bycatch and inaction. The bycatch numbers are not small, as some would attest. 9,000 Chinook salmon is not a small number of Chinook salmon. That would feed half the interior villages. That is not a small number. It requires action. A half million chum salmon being caught uh, by bycatch is devastating. We need this advisory committee to take advisement to provide real perspective beyond the commercial on these numbers. Let's be clear. About the interventions this committee could make, this advisory board can make, and the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council could make. On that front, here are some recommendations. Bycatch needs extreme reduction. The pollock industry shouldn't be rewarded with higher caps as long as the in river communities aren't allowed to fish at all. A PSC needs to be established for non salmon, particularly chum in the Bering Sea. Real Bering Sea fishery closures are needed, not for one or two months. The State of Alaska bycatch review task force and the NPFMC salmon bycatch committee committee should be collaborative and not siloed. They should work together, have joint sessions, conversations, not just review each other's reports. We need to get all the scientists and indigenous people in the same room. I recommend that we have cooperative conservation. If that doesn't work, let's try some more cooperation. Clearly, I'm recommending that the terms of reference for the Salmon Bycatch Committee reflect this cooperative rather than siloed approach. We recommend that this committee be approved to continue its work. We recommend that Dr. Mike Williams Sr. be appointed chair of the Salmon Bycatch Committee. We recommend that the Salmon Bycatch Committee appoint Stan Zuri and Ben Stevens from Interior Alaska to serve to have some more in-river perspective on the report. And I'd also recommend Ms. Brooke Woods as well. And so we ask the terms of reference on membership to be changed to reflect the need for recruitment to serve as well on that committee, not just public comment. We recommend that you all personally go to a village on the Yukon River, learn about the impacts of your advice, both positive and negative, and then perhaps advise the NPFMC as a whole to follow suit as an official recommendation. It's clear to me that additional perspectives would be beneficial in this work that I'm a lifelong fisherman from Fort Yukon. I'll see you.
0: So you notice a pretty common reoccurring theme throughout these testimonies being made to protect the chum salmon. And they understand that it's not just a single issue. And what they're asking for is something to be done. They know that this is a complex issue. They know that the council doesn't have control over everything, but they don't feel the council is doing anything to fix the issue at hand. He talks about the salmon bycatch numbers. 9,000 Chinook salmon is a lot of salmon. Now, that doesn't seem like a whole lot to the Pollock Fleet, because that's not just one vessel catching that. That's not just one group of vessels. That's all the bycatch in the Bering Sea, and that's a lot of fish. A lot of fish are caught from the Bering Sea. When you compare numbers, you know billions of individual pollock being caught versus only a couple thousand Chinook salmon, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But these fish make an impact to the communities that they return to, to the ecosystems that they return to, the nutrients that they bring, the food they bring up, the cultural impact they have on these people is greater than what the numbers can show, greater than what science can just show in a base spreadsheet. There are other impacts besides what... Are seen monetarily and these need to be taken into account. He does a really good job of displaying that in this commentary. While you may not agree with all of his viewpoints, you have to understand that this is a person coming from where the impact is directly being made and you need to take that into consideration. So he gets asked a question. I really like the response so I'm going to play it here next.
4: Thank you for your testimony. Um, So you had mentioned earlier in your testimony about needing to improve information sharing. Can you provide any examples or uh, ideas that you would like to see in that aspect and maybe what kind of information you're asking for?
6: Sure, I could do that. Um, So earlier uh, in the presentation, you had talked about the need for uh, the state of Alaska to have greater collaboration with the NPFMC, especially especially on river issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we were allowed to collaborate in a greater fashion, if we actually shared our information with each other, uh, perhaps we would get to the bottom of some of these issues about why chum salmon are not returning. Uh, Does anybody here know the state of the Christian River? No, see, just this guy. I come from where the fish come from, okay? That's the Upper Yukon Flats area, where uh, whitefish come from, where all those salmon are coming through, and they uh, spawn. Now we can actually have some discussions between the state of Alaska and advisory boards like this, where we're all sitting at the same table, talking about the same thing. Well, it'd be a lot easier to drive this car to someplace meaningful we got one board that's uh controlling the steering wheel and another controlling the gas and meanwhile the car is in the ditch uh let's get some cooperation around here we're all working for the same people
0: i don't know about anybody who listens to this podcast but i really like that metaphor i feel it i feel up my bones it's one of those things where the guy doing the work and the guy dictating the work not talking to each other and nothing's getting done, you know the car's in the ditch, and it just it makes a lot of sense if those there's not a connection between those two, then there's not anything effective being done and this is something that can be done like you said with greater collaboration between people, greater communication we we live in a world of connectivity where you can sit on your computer here in the Pacific Northwest and talk to somebody down in Australia there is a connection that is easy to be made and can be made but for some reason is not being made. They have the ability to do this and it's something that should be done. Now I don't know what it would take for this to be done but something can be done and that needs to be figured out. So the next comment made in order technically is made by a fishing association and I'm gonna wait to put that one up. I'm gonna try to group these together so that you get a taste of the people who want something to be done immediately they want immediate action drastic action to be done to save the salmon and the people who will be directly impacted by the actions being made so here is another comment made by someone asking for the salmon to be saved
7: you can hear me hear me well um dringwinzi nai uh, so my name is Rochelle Adams. I am from the villages of Fort Yukon and Beaver in the Yukon Flats, along the Yukon River. Um, I come from a long line of what is called subsistence users. We call it a good life. As I begin, I'd like to say to the Dena'ina relatives for their stewardship of these lands known as Anchorage. Also to the indigenous stewards all across Alaska who have been and always will be the stewards of these lands and waters. These are the knowledge systems and ways of knowing that have been missing from these conversations. And this inequity needs to be addressed in these systems of management to bring back the balance so greatly needed. There's a wealth of knowledge with all the cultures across Alaska that need to be on the table as these decisions are being made. This includes our Alaska native language speakers. We have translators available and willing to help bridge the gap and make sure that this knowledge is being shared. These systems are very removed for many of the people along the river. Um, I'd quickly like to thank those of you that attended the town hall on Monday. There we heard numerous stories from people that all had a unified message of the importance of the subsistence salmon salmon fisheries and the need to put caps and to stop trawling so that we can begin healing from the harm caused to our ways of life. These stories are only a small glimpse of the realities lived along the entire Yukon River watershed food insecurity hunger inequality, these all have solutions, and you have the privilege and opportunity to make these recommendations and motions that can address each of these issues. Um, Monday night I shared a bit about. Growing up, some of my first memories of life are being at my grandma and grandpa's fish camp with my family along the Yukon River, and I shared how I remember seeing my grandpa Johnny carrying huge king salmon up the bank from his boat, and I remember my grandma Susie cutting fish that seemed so much bigger than her from my first memories of life and throughout my entire life we have always fished. Salmon fishing has been my favorite time of year, fishing with my family, feeling the connection to the land, water, animal relatives, celebrating the first fish, sharing with my elders and community, providing nourishment that feed our minds, body and souls. My grandma always told me that fish was brain food, and that nourishment and those values that I was raised in, I pass that on to my children. And the need to continue with this next generation is what brings me here today. But now, to stand here and carry the voices of my people, my communities, and to speak our ways of life in the past tense, it's emotional labor. It breaks my heart. It's not easy to stand here over and over again to hear all of these stories, and the need to take action is now. It's a complete devastation of entire nations of people to not be able to fish. Our smoke houses have been empty. We aren't able to practice our ceremonies. Our elders, our new generation of babies are not able to be nourished and complete in our ways of knowing without the salmon. All of these things greatly affect the core of who we are. Something has to be done now before it's too late. It's being compared to the way of the buffalo and the genocide of American Indians, and we need to be on the right side of history to take action now. The subsistence users take only what is needed. We only harvest food for our families and it's absurd that as we're not fishing, our smokehouses are empty, we're hungry, trawlers are out there taking more fish than I can even imagine. The salmon need a chance to come home to spawn. They need a chance to live and it's up to us and it's up to you, each one of you, to do what is possible to give the salmon a chance to survive. These actions need to happen now put a cap on Chum and Chinook bycatch to stop bycatch, add additional tribal seats, increase traditional knowledge, consult with tribes in meaningful dialogue, and we really need the subsistence um, to continue the salmon bycatch committee, increase trawler coverage and monitoring, and we need heavy implementation of fines if bycatch cap is reached. I urge you to prioritize subsistence users who rely on salmon to feed their families over the economic drive of -of out-of-state trawlers. Masicho
0: so another emotional testimony you can feel the heartbreak in their words while it may be easy for us to look at this and come from a different perspective it's different when you're living in it imagine your hometown not being able to get food from the grocery store not being able to get fuel for your car and someone else being outside controlling it and saying well it has better economic impact somewhere else. So you're just going to have to either live like this or move on and leave your home, your culture, and everything you know, and your grandparents knew, and your great-grandparents and generations back knew. Because, you know, it just, it works out better in someone else's wallet. Um, We don't have an easy solution to kind of fix your problem, but hey, you know, this guy over here is doing pretty well, so you should be happy for him. It's that that same kind of idea. While I may be hyperbolating or exaggerating, it's not that far off. So here it comes a question about the comment being made about stopping trawling completely, and I'll let you make your own interpretation of it. This next question does ask about CDQs, and I don't know if we've talked about it in the podcast, so I'm just going to kind of tell you what it is. CDQ is called a community development quota. The program was established to provide Western Alaska villages the opportunity to participate and invest in fisheries in the Bering Sea and Aleutian Islands management area to support economic development in the Western Alaska, to alleviate property and provide economic and social benefits for the restaurants of Western Alaska, and to achieve sustainable and diversified local economies in Western Alaska. So it's where The fish being caught are directly used, the funds from those are being used to directly support the communities in Alaska, the the native communities, the smaller cities along the Aleutian Islands and western Alaska.
8: Mr. Chairman, thank you, Rochelle, for your uh, thoughtful testimony. I wanted to just double check something you said um, toward the beginning of your uh, comments. And you said that you wanted to stop trawling. Is that what I heard?
7: Yes, there needs to be caps on trawling, and then eventually to stop
8: it. So we have to take the step now. Uh, Mr. Chairman, follow up. Thank you, and thanks. Um, thank you for your uh, directness. Um, are you aware of the benefit to CDQs from trawling, and does that factor into your thoughts on this?
7: um Yes, I do think that it's a little. <laughs> I mean, it's a little ironic that you're asking me the benefits of other people. Um, you know, who are getting monetary um you know getting funds for selling fish while i'm hungry i'm starving i haven't had fish in years and um it's just it seems a little ironic to me so
0: not really a whole lot to say about this next comment i'm just putting this in so that you guys understand it is a different comment
2: um, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> yeah we have you loud and clear go ahead
9: okay awesome um Good morning, and thank you, members of the AP. My name is Teresa Moji. I live in Bethel on Yupik, Chupik, and Athabascan lands and waters. Um, and I work with the Kuskokwim River Intertribal Fish Commission. And through the Fish Commission, I've learned so, so much about our tribal community's way of life, especially the centrality of salmon for all around well-being here. But I'm not speaking on behalf of the Fish Commission today, rather as an individual urging the AP to recommend that the Council take action now to reduce salmon bycatch. Our Kuskokwim communities, and really all communities throughout the AYK region, are experiencing a multi-year, multi-species salmon disaster. You all are very well aware of this. It started with Chinook salmon in 2009 on the Kuskokwim, then Chum salmon in 2020, and this past summer there was an unprecedented coho salmon collapse. It kept the river closed for um, about the last month of salmon fishing here. The conservation measures to protect salmon so so far have only been implemented in river. Um, The 2022 season was the most heavily restricted salmon fishing season on the Kuskokwim, and conservation closures took place through most of June, July, August, and September to protect king, chum, and coho. Chinook salmon escapement goals were met only because of subsistence fishing families' harvest sacrifices. No chum or coho salmon escapement goals were met on the Kuskokwim. There are over 18,000 people who live along this river, and all of them are dependent on salmon and fishing, and none of them met their salmon needs this summer. Meanwhile, the conservation action happening in the Bering Sea, or really the lack thereof, is not commensurate with the conservation restrictions that the people in the Kuskokwim are experiencing. The current Chinook salmon PSC limits are no longer meaningful, and there is no meaningful conservation action happening to protect chum salmon. The industry IPA adjustments after June this year were something, but it's clear that they need more work to get the fleet to meaningfully avoid chum salmon. The council's last analysis of chum salmon bycatch, which was laid out really well by staff in the discussion paper, happened at a time when chum salmon returns to western Alaska were strong and dependable but that's no longer the case so I understand that bycatch is not the sole cause of salmon declines but again and again it's reiterated that it's a factor that's within this council's control especially compared to other factors like warming sea surface temperatures decreased prey abundance other climate related causes all of these factors cumulatively are causing salmon to struggle but we need to be focusing on what's within our collective control so moreover even as the reported western Alaska chum salmon stock proportions are a fraction of overall chum salmon bycatch This fraction in the past few years has been higher than the subsistence in river harvest in western Alaska rivers. This is a gross inequity and it needs to be addressed. I hear over and over from people on the Kuskokwim that it's not that the Pollock Fleet needs to be shut down, but that salmon bycatch needs to be zero so we can restore and rebuild our salmon populations. And I hear immense urgency to do this because of the crisis at hand within our communities. There needs to be a better sharing of the conservation burden. Um, I just heard in Stephanie Madsen's testimony that the Pollock Fleet is not the cause of salmon declines, but neither are in river subsistence users and they're being shut down. The system is restricting subsistence fishermen and protecting industry. The council has no real consideration for tribal and subsistence users needs. And the system is also very single species minded instead of looking holistically at the entire marine to freshwater ecosystem. Sometimes I wonder if the decline in prey abundance is also linked to trawl fishing in addition to climate change, and that's having a huge effect on our salmon. It's clear that management needs to become more precautionary, inclusive of all users, ecologically minded, sustainable and adaptive to needs throughout the ecosystem. So my recommendations, um, I urge the AP to recommend the council initiate an analysis of a range of alternatives to set a PSC limit for chum salmon. One of these alternatives should be zero bycatch, since that is what Western Alaska tribes are calling for, and all of them should consider restrictions for the pollock fishery, since that would even out the conservation burden. There's plenty of data that could be used to set these alternatives, and I encourage the AP and the council to think outside the box on setting alternatives and PSC limits, not just looking at how it's been done in the past. I also urge the AP to recommend the council develop a discussion paper that looks to further reduce chinook salmon bycatch. In both of these, the AP needs to urge the council to work directly with tribes and tribal organizations and Western Alaska subsistence-dependent communities, and traditional indigenous knowledge needs to be included as part of the best scientific information available. So thank you. And I'm happy to take any questions.
0: Thank you, Therese. This next question I feel gives the speaker a good opportunity to describe exactly why the frustration has built up in the, so here it is.
2: Looks like we have a question for you now from Melissa Johnson and then one from Ruth Christensen.
5: Thank you, Therese, for your testimony. Um, can you explain? Um, you had mentioned in your testimony why initiating an analysis now is so important, as opposed to um, waiting for a longer-term recommendation from the Salmon Bycatch Committee.
9: Through the chair, thanks, Melissa, for your question. Um, I think both are necessary. Um, what I see is that the council has looked at this issue before, and there's been a steady and consistent push from people who are affected by salmon declines for the council to take action. And these systems move slowly. There's a lot of deliberation that needs to happen. I understand that, but push action down the road further and further, only delays finding some solution to the crisis that's happening now and has been happening for the past three years on the Yukon and Kuskokwim and even longer in Norton Sound. Um, people are suffering now. You've heard that in people's testimonies at this meeting, you've heard it in past meetings, you've read it in public comments. And so to delay any action because there's not the typical sources of data available, because there's a same bycatch committee that's been formed that will eventually provide some recommendation. Um, there shouldn't be a delay in this action to wait for those things i think the salmon bycatch committee is a useful forum um i especially applaud the council for appointing five tribal citizens to that committee and i think that it's a useful group to continue developing these caps um and other action over time like these these should not be issues that are you know you set a cap and then you don't look at it again you've heard people calling for reductions to chinook salmon even though there's been psc limits implemented for um a decade so these things need to continue to be looked at salmon bycatch committee and long-term solutions are useful but There's a crisis happening now and it needs to be paid attention to and responded to. Does that answer your question?
0: Alright, so that was another solid testimony. So the next testimony I want to play actually comes from someone in the scientific community and it discusses one of the comments discussed earlier by a representative of the commercial fishing fleet. So I'm going to insert the comments the public comment or testimony made by the commercial fishing fleet representative and then play this next comment so here's a comment or testimony made by the commercial fishing
10: members of the advisory panel my name is stephanie Manson, and i'm executive director of the outsea processors association mr chairman i'm not quite sure where to go from here because when i originally signed up to testify i was going to come and provide you some information about the changes that we made in ipa this year for chum at the request of the council and stakeholders which we did we modified our ipa we got it approved by National Marine Fisheries Service and we implemented it in B season. I was gonna provide you some information about what the effects were. We had more closures. As you look at the numbers, we caught 75,000 less chum salmon this year than we did last year. But I don't know if that really matters about what we're trying to do because I continue to hear that it doesn't matter what the cause is or, or what the other mortality sources are or what the state of Alaska's you know senior scientist says the problem is with Chinook and chum, it's trawlers. And I know that you might see me at the meetings and you might think whether well, Stephanie and five companies and 15 vessels, but there is a whole community of people that depend on the public fishery out on the Bering Sea every year. And it's larger than the population of Alaska. So when you say that you're not impacted, yeah, it's not impacted uh, apples and apples. My heart goes out and I'm, I'm a 40, 50 year resident of Alaska, lived in rural Alaska. My heart goes out to Western Alaskans who can't fish, that have food security issues, that have a typhoon. I understand that. If I could fix that problem, I would get my members to fix it, we can't fix the problem, because we are not the problem, we are a contributor, we step up when we're asked to step up to contribute to the solution, we've done that, but yet we continue to hear that we're the problem, we do not catch coho. When you talk about a multi species collapse on the Yukon and Cuscoquim, it is not due to trolling, because we don't catch coho. So for people not to think that it's food, competition, climate, Hikiofanas, hike. I mean, I spent my summer listening to Brooke every Tuesday to try to get a better understanding of what the concerns are, what's going on up there. Every Tuesday, I listened to that, and she runs a good meeting, i told her that before. I've spent my time on the governor's task force. I don't remember how many meetings we had or how much public testimony we had, but we went through all the information and all the presentations. I'm a member of the council's by catch task force. We're gonna do our part, but I have to tell you, I'm concerned about expectations. We've had a Chinook cap since 2010. 6,000, I understand that seems like a big number. But we've had the, chum, the Chinook gap since 2010 and the, the stocks haven't rebounded at all. So what is the efficacy of these management measures that you're putting in place that are actually benefiting Western Alaska? I think the leaders in Western Alaska need to help everyone understand expectations. Because if you look at the data, whether you like it or not, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But if you look at the data, you could shut the Pollock fishery down and there will not be a rebound in Western Alaska for Chinook and Chung. There's food, there's marine heat waves, there's near shore problems with Chinook. I mean, you've heard the scientists. We will step up and do our part. The folks that are asking for a chum cap, I ask you please start thinking about what comes after that statement. Is it 500,000 cap, 250, 150? Is it split between inshore offshore? There's a lot of decision points once you say you want a chum cap. So I'm concerned. I- I I think I do have good information for you about what we tried this year, we had four additional closures we didn't have any. uh, vessels that that were excluded from the high bycatch areas because we worked really hard to avoid chum. But Mr chairman i'm happy to meet with Mr Alexander, but I think we have to recognize that there is fundamental philosophical differences about this approach. we're not going to convince some people about what the science is saying because they don't believe that. So we're going to have to just agree to disagree move forward and those that want to jump up, you need to bring more information back and I see my times up and. You can see i'm pretty passionate about this issue i've devoted a lot of my career on this issue my time on the ap and the Council i'm committed to trying to do our part, but i'm afraid that people think we're going to solve it, and I don't think we can.
2: Thank you, Miss madsen looks like we have questions for you, I think we'll go susie and then lauren
10: Through the chair just a clarification I missed the number
4: that you mentioned at the beginning of how many. Less chum you had this year for our sector was 75,000 Thank you.
10: Our total was half of what it was last year.
2: Thank you, Lauren, go ahead
7: the chair, thank you, miss for your testimony. And I, I don't know if you're in the room, but I did say that it was really important information for us to hear what the industry has done um, in the last meetings. That the industry said there's a lot that we can do, and we're going to do what we can. We're going to come back, and that wasn't on the agenda to be shared with the AP. And so I imagine that it would be appreciated by the room if there was some space for you to share some of this information, because I think it is important when considering the possibility of a jump cap and what that looks like. What is the industry capable of? What are they willing to work with? And what are measures that can be taken inside the council or outside of the council, whether it's you know through IPAs
10: or through its through federal regulation? So um, I very much appreciate that information um, as we move forward on this issue. Thank okay. you. Well, um, we're going to give the presentation to the council I could post it I will post the, the powerpoint to the council's agenda if anybody's interested and I'll be around all week and happy to discuss how we did it and we're going to continue we're going to continue to work to try to come up with an alternative that can be managed inside the ipa without a chum cat.
2: thank you miss matson um i think that
10: These are complicated and you know it's difficult, and this is not the best forum I mean i'm looking forward to an in person meeting with my fellow salmon bycatch committee because over zoom you're not building relationships. We had four so, if you recall, uh, our IPA required a, a notice of closures and Thursday, but when we started looking back at the data at the request of the Council about what more can you do for chum, We discovered that maybe if we looked at the data on Monday and initiated closure from Tuesday to Friday, instead of just Thursday, maybe we could cut the spikes off of some of the chum catch so we did that we had four additional closure areas over the summer and you know in the PowerPoint you'll see where those closures were in addition to the regular chum closures that we had because remember we're also balancing Chinook in the B season and then um, we had we instituted an outlier provision which many of you will recall was required in the Chinook IPA because the purpose of the IPAs and the way that they set up the Chinook was individual vessel accountability and trying to use peer pressure to get everybody to improve their behavior and it has been successful to do that But we wanted to uh, make sure that there wasn't going to be an outlier, so we put in an outlier provision in our IPA both for Chinook and Chum that says if you're a 1.5 standard deviation difference from the rest of the fleet, you're going to be considered an outlier for that season, and if you have multiple outlier seasons, there are penalties. And I won't go into those details, we did have an outlier this year, Um, unfortunately for them, they had a freezer breakdown and so they got stuck fishing later in the year which we don't like to do because that's the chums out there, and so we ran up uh, they ran up the number a little bit. Uh, had they not had that freezer breakdown we could have probably been maybe off the grounds and, and reduce some more but we do have that outlier provision it doesn't matter why they're an outlier if they're an outlier next season then there will be consequences so those are in a nutshell mr chairman what some of our IPA uh amendments were uh, we're going to maintain them they're, they're currently in our ipa and i really do think that to respond to the, the benefit of the ipas that i think people understand is that we are able to respond to on the grounds conditions a chump cap is a chump cap It doesn't really tell you what the temperature was last year. It doesn't really tell you what the genetics change might have been. It's just a cap. There's no incentive to reduce your catch. If you have a cap that's going to shut you down, might as well fish up to the cap. We're looking as an industry for incentivizing the fleet, which is our whole IPA, Mr. Chairman, to incentivize the fleet to avoid Western Alaska salmon at any level of pollock or Western Alaska salmon abundance. That's our task. Chinook is easier because we don't have this huge component of Western uh, of Asian hatchery fish. We try to avoid Western Alaska salmon and we look at the genetics and there's a spatial temporal aspect to it, and we will continue to do that. But I feel like we continue to do this, but we're not getting any acknowledgement that the, the that the traw fishery is moving forward. My colleague from southeast there hasn't been trawling you know, in, in the eastern Gulf for a very, very long time, so I don't think that trawling is impacting anything that's going on in southeast because that's also where I live. So, Mr. Chairman, I, I know I went a little off track I appreciate everybody's time but i really do think that you know we need to acknowledge that we're not going to convince each other what's the cause what's the solution and that maybe we do need to start down an analysis path, path looking at the required federal regulations and the 10 national standards and how you balance that to move forward and what are the true benefits to western alaska stocks by putting a cap or shutting down the pollock fishery and i think that really needs to be well understood because if you pick the wrong number and you don't have returns going to western alaska you're going to hear that's a wrong number we need to lower it without any kind of efficacy about what the impacts were the benefits were and i just want to leave you with I'm here, five companies behind me, 15 vessels behind them, and over 3,000 people that are working in the Bering Sea for the public fishery. I don't know what caused the reduction. I know that we put these in, so you could make the inference that we put these in and chunk went down. I don't know. The temperature was cold in the Bering Sea. If you look back past, when it's warm, we have more bycatch. If it's cold, we have less. I mean, there's so many other variables that I don't want to sit here and say that what we did caused the reduction. I think it contributed, I think that. So that's that, I didn't quite say that. Um, Now, remember that in A season is when we catch Chinook. Chum are not on the grounds in A season we start january 10th in the B season chinook don't show up until end of september or october so there isn't really a correlation between chinook bycatch and chum catch because they are in the bering sea at different times in different places um temporally and spatially and when you look at the genetics and i do encourage you to look at the genetics the western alaska salmon start to look spatially and temporally different in the bering sea and that's the information that the industry needs to continue to maintain and improve upon so that we can craft mitigation measures to avoid West Alaska salmon, because nobody in this room should really care about Asian hatchery chum, because they're out there competing with the wild stocks. We know that. So um, I don't think there's a correlation between our Chinook, which was quite low as well, uh, and the chum bycatch, because it, it happens in two different seasons. The sectors uh, catch it differently. You know, We're not allowed to fish in some areas in the BC where the catcher vessels are. So you know, you have to understand that you put a chum cap in there, it's gonna affect the different sectors. We have three sectors in the variant sea for You're gonna affect the sectors differentially. So you need to understand, What you're facing when you start going down the path, and the decision points that will follow, an analysis that looks at a chum cap.
2: Thank you. Elaborate and tell us what some of those consequences are.
10: Well, the consequences are that, as you recall, in our IPA, we look at the uh, removals of pollock and the either chinook or chum, and there's a base rate, and we establish a bycatch avoidance area. And if that vessel's performance is not correct or meet the standard, they are excluded. From those bycatch avoidance areas, there are other ones that if they can be good performers, they're allowed to fish in there. They're taking a risk because we're telling you this is a bad area, but because your performance is okay, we're gonna let you fish in there until you can't. So the, the outlier provision means that if we identify a bycatch avoidance area, that outlier penalty is you have to stay out of all bycatch avoidance areas that are identified, regardless of that vessel's performance at the time.
0: That was an interesting bit of testimony from a viewpoint of the commercial fishing. Now they talk a lot about not having an incentive to not target these fish if there's no if there's a hard cap if there's a set number that they're allowed to catch they're going to catch that number and then just that's it that they, either they'll hit it or they don't and there's no incentive behind that but i feel like that's really not true i feel like that's kind of a deceptive bit of information so when it comes to my experience working on commercial fishing vessels in Alaska. I can't say that I had any experience in 2021 or 2020 on a Pollock fishing vessel, but what I can say is my years prior to that, that commercial fishermen didn't give two duties about chum salmon catch at all. There, there was none, they didn't care. You could tell them how many salmon you got and they're like, oh, I don't care about that. I only care about Chinook because they had a cap on Chinook salmon, they didn't have a cap on chum salmon. Now, as she talks about these revolving closures or uh, or areas that have high bycatch and the fishing vessels will try to get out of that so they don't catch the chum salmon and they get punished. They're not allowed to fish there if they do it later. But why can't there be a hard cap on chum? So if the fishing fleet does actually catch that many chum that they get shut down, but also keep this idea of the f- fleet mandating themselves as well. Why can't we have a mix of both? She doesn't really explain that. She just says, well, if we can't have it this way, then we're just not going to do it this way and we'll do whatever we want up to what we're allowed and that'll be it. And that's really a childish way to look at it, in my opinion. Yes, it is frustrating to be told like, hey, you can't catch more than this because if you do, we're going to get shut down. And I'm glad that she's willing to admit that they don't know what they did is actually what made the difference because there were so, so many less chum caught this year than there were the year before, or last year than the year before, that they can't say that this is the reason why. They talk about surface temperatures. They do see that historically, that warmer sea surface temperatures seem to have a correlation with higher bycatch numbers, and that may be true. It may be that what they did worked really well, and they just caught less fish because people were paying attention to it, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be a cap as to how many fish they catch. It's a little frustrating on their end. It's a little frustrating on the natives' end. It's a little frustrating on everybody. But something needs to be done. And the idea that the commercial fleet is slowly deciding to make these changes is a little silly. Okay, why didn't they do this earlier? Why didn't they make these changes before? Why did they have to be told to do any of the rules? Why don't they just naturally care about the environment that they're extracting these resources from and make these changes to be more progressive? Why aren't they looking for issues and problems that can arise in the future and try to find solutions to them. It's because they don't have an incentive. It costs them more money. They make less money when they have to make these changes. And don't let them fool you into thinking that the commercial fishing fleet is full of environmentalists and people that care about everybody around the state of Alaska. It's just not true, okay? Anywhere you could say that, it's just not true. These people are making profit. They're not up there to protect the environment. They're not up there to help Western Alaskans. They're up there to make a buck. And you can't blame them for that. They're doing a job. They're getting paid to do their job. But when they come out and say things like this to make themselves seem like they're out there for your best interest, for the Western Alaska's best interest, they're pulling, trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Don't let them do that. Like The Western Alaskans are looking out for themselves because they are struggling. They are a struggling people. The Pollock Fleet are looking out for themselves because they want to keep making money in the way they have historically made money. But They're reaping the consequences of their own actions. For the longest time, they did not give two duties about chum salmon numbers. If they weren't forced to care about king salmon numbers, they wouldn't be caring about those either. Yes, some of these people are from the native areas. They do care about the numbers, but they, (laughs) my experience, a lot of fishermen don't see the correlation between what they do and what is going on out there. Maybe some of them do. Maybe, you know, a large number of them do. But I don't think all of them do. I've had plenty of discussions with fishermen who have this uh, this Schrodinger's idea that the fish they catch and release are alive and dead at the same time. You ask them, well, why'd you handle the fish like that? They're like, oh, well, they're dead. So, you know, it doesn't really matter how I handled this fish. If I handled it against the ways that are regulated, then, you know, it's because the fish is already dead. So who? why are you recording that? Who cares? They already account for it. And then you get the same idea from the exact same group of people that are, well, all these fish survive, so why are you recording that against us? You know, we're releasing them, they'll be alive, they'll come back, and it won't be an issue. There's no mortality. It's not true. They they go between these weird bipolar swings. They get really mad when you record it because they know it's going against their quota, and they're trying to make their money, trying to make their living, and get out of there. But you can't have it both ways, and it's really frustrating to see it happen like this. So that was a commercial fishing point of view. I've got one more set of commentary that I'm gonna record for this episode. It's gonna to have to be a two-parter. There is a lot being discussed. There's a lot to be unloaded. And the next episode probably won't come out till after the committee, the council meeting, all that is wrapped up. And I apologize for that, but it's just a time frame that I have to work with. So here's the next set of commentary.
2: Megan Williams who's scheduled in person. Welcome.
11: Good morning. My name is Megan Williams and I am a fishery scientist with Ocean Conservancy. Uh, salmon are a keystone species, and they represent the health of pelagic, coastal, and terrestrial ecosystems. They're essential to food security, to culture, to economic sustainability, um, for fisheries and for um, indigenous peoples across the state. Um, salmon in the communities that depend on them are in absolute crisis. As you are well aware, from 2020 to 2022 to current, the stock status of both Chinook and Chum in Western Alaska has hit really record lows. Meanwhile, Chum bycatch in the Bering Sea Pollock fishery has increased steadily since 2013. And the number of Chinook caught from coastal western Alaska stocks in 2019 and 2020 was substantially higher than the 10-year average, despite a prolonged decline portion of salmon. So these declining salmon stock status trends and bycatch rates collectively, they signal that there is more work we need to do to reduce salmon bycatch. Um, so I appreciate that the issue we are primarily dealing with today has to do with um, the Chum Salmon discussion paper. And I do have a few recommendations specific to that topic. Um, I support what I've heard in testimony um, from a number of people that the Council should initiate an analysis and evaluate a range of alternatives for a chum psc limit and based on testimony one that includes a zero bycatch as an alternative. Um, A few justifications that come to mind when I think about it. um, Voluntary incentives that we've heard a lot about today to reduce chum bycatch under amendment 110 have clearly not been effective, based on the increasing rates of chum bycatch in recent years. Therefore, a psc limit is needed to improve performance Two, nearly. 20% 20% of chum salmon bycatch <laughs> caught in the pollock fishery from 2011 to 2020 was destined for Western Alaska rivers. So looking at that time period actually makes a difference. 20% or 19% to be specific of, of the bycatch originated from Western Alaska rivers. That is not an insignificant number when you're looking at the, fa- the crises faced by these communities. Um, number three, there are sufficient data and tools available to take action now to meaningfully institute a cap on chum bycatch in the pollock fishery. So. Um, and I do hope that the upcoming work of the salmon bycatch committee will continue to generate important advancements on the bycatch issue for both Shama and Chinook. But the committee is not a reason to delay action now due to the urgency of the situation and the crisis faced by communities in the region. Instead, I think the recommended analysis should focus on this PSC limit um, in, the, in the near term, while the committee can develop alternative tools to reduce salmon bycatch for both species in a longer term capacity. And I think there's great value in both of those approaches. And it shows that the AP and the council are really feeling are willing to act proactively about the issue that they're faced with now. Um, we're here today because as opposed to proactive management reactionary management to large ecosystem level concerns like climate change like bycatch are proving insufficient in the face of climate change right the ongoing salmon crises and recent crab crashes are evidence that new tools and fundamental changes to our management approach are needed and to close we can all acknowledge that there are multiple stressors on salmon i don't think anybody is trying to just blame one aspect of this but that does not mean that status quo is appropriate with regards to salmon management We must manage what we can control for, and we can manage to reduce the salmon bycatch. That's all I have. Thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, Dr. Williams.
0: So this upcoming question, it deals directly with what the commercial fleet testified earlier. It's another loaded question from the council. Not a huge fan of it. I think some of these council members are a little bit aggressive in their questioning. I think they're very defensive of the... Western fishing fleet and not really sympathetic to the issues that are actually at hand. I'm not sure if this is just a few council members, but they seem pretty aggressive when dealing with people who want a change that will help better the environment and really better fishing overall. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's just me. Let me know if I'm wrong. Feel free to contact me and say, well, I don't agree with your opinion here, Wayne, but I'll let you make your own interpretation with the question here that follows.
3: Regan, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe I heard you say that our voluntary chum salmon avoidance measures aren't working. Chum salmon went, our interactions with chum salmon went down in 2022 as soon as we put them in place for the bee season. So I'm wondering why you
11: think they're not working. I'm talking about some of the, I'm not talking about the, the most recent year, I'm talking about the longer term trend that we're seeing post amendment 110 and the increase that we've seen since 2013 and so and I think that looking at all of the graphs that I've seen unless there's a graph I haven't seen chum bycatch has increased since 2013 and in 2020 in particular that number was very high by over 500,000 as a clarification then you are directly correlating
3: and relating avoidance measures with the amount of chum salmon
11: like they're directly tied in your mind through the chair um no no thank you for the question I am not directly correlating, I mean, those are these are now we're into some kind of a complex statistical um, <laughs> relationship when you're when you're using language like that. But what I'm, 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 I'm providing a context of what we have what we're doing in management. So I'm looking at the management context only, and then also looking at the numbers and when you of bycatch of chum, when you look at those side by side, there, that's what we're seeing, I'm not, you don't have to imply correlation to assess the situation. And it's our job as scientists and managers to look at, what are we doing in management? What are the numbers? What are the responses? It's a complex, eco- complex ecosystem. And I fully appreciate that there are multiple drivers here for sure. But what are we able to control via management and and what is happening on the grounds with an observed fishery like this
2: yes that's a short follow-up. <laughs> okay we have one more short follow-up
3: okay so with the thank you mr chair i appreciate that um so with controlling you know recognizing that we only have certain things within our control and and, and advocating the establishment of a chum salmon cap um is that cap does that cap include the the catch of western or a hatchery salmon because we do not control the releases of asian or russian chum salmon.
11: thank you for the question through the chair um in the analysis that we would like to see put forward yes of course the genetic origin of the stocks will be considered and i think you know there's we are fortunate to have a lot of data on that and have some pretty clear answers about um the makeup of the salmon that are being caused by catch um but that will only serve to and, and that is one reason that i think we are ready to move forward we, we have a sense of the genetic stock origin in a lot in a lot of the cases of what we're looking at and so therefore we have information and that will be used to inform the analysis and of course that would be considered that's an important discussion point um, but again when there are certain years and, and the amount of if you look at this over time the composition of the chum by caps that are caught it does vary but over the longer time period for which we have data 2011 to 2020 um, you're looking at 19 percent on average and so that's a significant percentage but and that would be considered in any analysis and and when we start digging deeper into numbers
2: Thank you. We'll have Heather and then Matt.
8: Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Um, Thanks for your testimony. I have two questions. The first is um, I'm having a hard time reconciling that you say that chum bycatch is increasing when in the past in 2022, it was half as much as the year before. Um, So I don't agree with that statement. Um, And then you keep using the time frame 20 through 2020 and ignoring 2021 and 22. But in 2022, there is a significant reduction of incidental catch of chum salmon. You are aware of that
11: down from 2021. Correct? Yeah. That's question. Yes.
8: Half as much as 2021. Um, but yes. Here, but that's not what you said in your testimony. You said it's continuing to increase. Can I, or is, it, is that the end of the question? That's the first question. Okay, Okay, yeah. first part of the question
11: um, through the chair. Again, um, so I'm a scientist, and the time frame that you're looking at matters. Um, we need to consider more than one-year performance. We need to think about what's happening on the grounds over the last 10 years. Um, we need to think about how management has, has been a part of that. And again, chum salmon bycatch has increased um since 2013 and yes there was a and if you if you created a trend line from that point it's just that that would be an increasing trend yes there was a decline in the last year and I appreciate that and that is um that hopefully is a signal of some effective industry avoidance so but again I'm looking at a different time period I'm not looking at just 2021 and 2022 I'm looking at 2011 to or 2013 is the case that I have brought up to 2020 2022. and again I think there's already in 2022 there's over 230,000 jump catch that have been landed thus far and you said it's about half of what occurred in 2021. So yes, there was a decline, but that is still a significant number when compared to the longer term average.
8: Follow-up. Yes. Yeah, uh, I guess I um, well, without editorializing, I'll save that. With all the knowledge that you have as a scientist and all the data that's available, where would you set the chum hard cap at? Uh thank
11: you for the question and through the chair. Um, I think this is something that I is really important to um to look back on some of the historic measures that we've considered. So and also to really weigh heavily into what the tribes are interested in seeing, but I think there are ways to approach this uh, via alternatives. You could be looking at historic bycatch numbers, so you could look at 25th percentile. You could look at a median. You could, and I'm not going to, I'm not the one to put that forward today. Um, but you could also start hopefully linking something more to abundance for what we do know for chums, so some kind of equivalent to a three river index. They're another alternative, and this is, uh, you know, maybe more forward thinking. but we are seeing advances in our ability to forecast for certain salmon species. So would it be possible to, to consider forecasting as well? And I do think in line with another really important piece here that would be progressive in this type of analysis and in considering what numbers would be appropriate, would be can we factor in our subsistence needs being met? Is there a metric there that could inform some kind of a tiered index? But I, I do not think that I'm the one you know, to come up and send those numbers, present those numbers today, but there are plenty of alternatives, historic bycatch, Abundance indices from a three river index and or some kind of forecast um, and subsistence needs metrics or indices that could be considered. There, there are a lot of information that could inform an analysis um soon.
2: I think that was those two questions we can. Is it a quick follow-up? <laughs> if it's a quick, a quick relevant follow-up, I think that that we can allow it. But I do think that it's important to remind everyone here while we're asking questions and while we're answering them that this is not anywhere close to final action. We're we're talking about a potential analysis and postulating on on hypothetical caps is uh it's abstract at this point and uh, I see that there's there there may be some benefit to it, but I think um there is also some some benefit to expediting this process and getting getting to the point. Thank you. Matt, go ahead.
12: Thanks, Mr. Chair. I wanted to return to a point you made in terms of and the analysis, including looking at zero bycatch. Um, and I was hoping you could just speak to some of the kind of indirect impacts that you would foresee from that from where I sit in terms of direct impacts. I would think that would lead to just no pollock fishery with foregone affordable meals, jobs and a lot of community impacts, but what I was interested in hearing your thoughts are is. Just in terms of what that would mean for the ecosystem, because if you have zero bycatch and the fishery is not happening. You know that's all those fish are going to basically stay in the water and one of the things we've been looking at is. increased hatchery production, and so if you really have a major change like that I mean. Is that something that you have some thoughts on and also I mean is that really going to cause in river returns I, I get that. You've made some points about solidarity and if there's a crisis here then maybe we need to create a crisis over there um but do you really see if there's going to be no pollock fishing and that that's going to actually cause the in river returns and are you worried about what happens to the ecosystem if we suddenly have this massive shift where pollock is just no longer going to meals is in the ocean i was just wondering if you had some thoughts on that thanks
11: the chair, thanks for the question that's a big question um so i said that in in my testimony in that i think it is our responsibility to listen to the over 100 written comments to the testimony that we've heard for years now about the drive to get to zero bycatch. So I think, and it's also important to consider I'm just discussing this in terms of initiating an analysis to review this. So I'm not. And so I think it is, it is respectful and responsive to include that as an alternative. Um, but that does not necessarily mean it will shape the end of you know, the, the action point a year or less, whatever from now. So I acknowledge that um, in terms of it, you know, trying to predict what that would do to the ecosystem that is that is sort of outside of my scope, what I can speak to is that I think, Salmon in particular are facing a number of challenges, Um, competition from hatchery being one, um, also uh, warming conditions, less food available, being another, and bycatch being a third. And and you've definitely heard this messaging that we can control for the bycatch. Um, And I think doing it this way and starting with initiating an analysis now allows, number one, the AP and the council to be responsive to tribal voices and consider that zero bycatch, but also to consider other alternatives, other ways, that we can start moving this this, this much needed action forward. we recognize and appreciate the value of the public industry and um, to, to national food uh, production and to other factors so I, I, i'm not trying to diminish from that in any sense, um, I don't I, you know so I, i'll leave it there.
12: <laughs> Matt go ahead. Thanks and th- that's helpful I mean I guess what i'm also interested in is just kind of a management of expectations, because I think you. preface your comments by kind of listing those other things that are going on, so I just wonder how the folks that you kind of interact with would feel if this Council takes some of the actions that you're advocating for and there's not really a change in what's happening in, the, in river um conditions because that's something that really worries worries me is that what i'm hearing you say is you know you need to take some action um but I also heard you say that there's all these other things are really the drivers, I presume, as a scientist what's going on, so I mean how does that kind of meet people's expectations.
11: um through the chair, thank you for that question, I, I think that's an important point um and and understanding that concern and the reality of what we can and can't do with management, especially in the context of climate change is is important in discussion and that's that's okay but not doing anything for fear. Of not getting the desired result because there is some uncertainty is a much greater risk, in my opinion.
2: Thank you. Susie.
4: Through the chair. So I struggle with your statement that the tools that have been employed um, by the pollock industry, by the pollock fishermen out there, including myself, that have been written into our IPAs, are not working. Um, and I look to your comment about your analysis, looking at the catch rates. When you did that, did you? I understand that you took a broader range of years. I get that. I'm scientist. You have to have a lot of. A lot of years included in there so that you have a sound result right so did you also overlap or look at the abundance of chum that was in the bering sea that was being produced by these hatcheries and how that was increasing over the years as well and while at the same time the area that our fishermen and our fleets are able to fish isn't getting any bigger but there's more chum coming into our system
11: so if, did you look at that at all in that analysis um yeah i've definitely um dug dug into that as much as I, sorry through the chair thank you um i've definitely dug in to, to trying to tease those apart. And those are important relationships to consider. Um, one additional factor of why the relative rate of Western Alaska chum bycatch, so when I think of the proportion of the stock that originates in Western Alaska in bycatch might be going down, it might just be because Western Alaska runs are so depressed, right? So in the last two years, um, 9% or sorry, so I'm gonna stop throwing round numbers because that's getting scary. Um, but <laughs> so you've seen when I compared that 19% to more recent, the estimate that I think Dr. Strand presented was 9% in 2020. And 2021, so that relative proportion of chum, Western Alaska chum in the bycatch composition has gone down, but that could also be related to Western Alaska stocks being depressed. But so that's important to consider. And I acknowledge that there may be more uh, that that, that the hatchery chum are playing a role in this, absolutely, but we can look at the percentage of chum that originates in Western Alaska means a few things. um, Number one, it could mean that there are more chum originating it from Asian origin stocks. It could also mean that Western Alaska stocks are so depressed again, that that's why that value is going down. Um, I'd also draw your attention to the fact that with Chinook, The actual relative proportion of chinook by catch that originated in Western Alaska was quite high in 2019 and 2020 and I think it was up to 50%. So those will vary um, according to abundance. um, But also and for chum, it will also vary according to sort of the the Asian origin stock composition, but it's it's we are fortunate to have that information and so we again we can control what we can control for.
2: Thank you Susie. Yeah,
4: I have a second question as well Um, in answering some of Bruce and heather's questions you had mentioned, if there is a CAP analyzed um to look at it in the sense that we've been using a three river index for chinook. how do you see and again this is kind of going back to the fact that we have a lot of other non-alaskan chum in the system how do you see a how do you see a similar um maybe index working if we have just increased non-alaskan chum coming into that system i mean is it is it really going to be have the same effect that you're expecting
11: through the chair um i think there's a couple layers to that question but um we know we, we have a general sense of the proportion of fish that are Western Alaska origin and, and that varies annually, but there, you know, we can look at time brackets to understand what that would what, what that could mean and so in terms of the overall bycatch and then sort of take that proportion and take it down to what the Western Alaska. Um, portion of that would be it's not uncommon for us in management to use an index, so, for instance, for, for a very data rich uh, run, for instance, so I know in terms of chum they tend to be more data limited than chinook on sort of run reconstruction information but. For instance, Yukon summer and fall chum are relatively data rich. And so you could select a multiple stocks from the Yukon region. You could try to expand that out in such a way that they are a proxy for overall Western Alaska abundance. And I think, and that's, that has precedents in other areas. And so we use an index based on the information we have to inform conservative management that has the best likelihood of protecting the overall stocks.
0: That was a lot, a lot to break down a lot to deal with. There's a significant chunk of comments left to be made. On this particular topic so you know it's a hot body topic with a lot of people getting frustrated on both sides a lot of the advisory panel is made up of commercial fishermen and active fishermen or representatives of their groups so make that what you will um you can go onto the council website everybody's got their group affiliation out in the open so you know who's uh who's horse they have in the race. And yeah, I'm really not sure. I don't, I don't want to lead anybody for this podcast to make any decisions off of what I talk about. I'm not so high and mighty as to think my opinion is going to sway a vast majority of people, but I don't want to take the chance that I've made my comments. Give me yours. If you feel so, um, I get frustrated by listening to this. I can't imagine the people who have something actually on the line, you know, I've kind of a third party here currently. I am not, you know, directly financially, uh, not financially obligated to the commercial fleet. I'm not requiring my food to come from the river that the commercial fleet is or is not impacting. It really seems like they are. Um, I think a lot of foolish arguments are being made Uh, On the commercial fishing fleet side, I think it's a lot of them saying, nah, I don't wanna, or nah, it's not us doing it, It's, it's them over there. They're the ones being the issue. I think if they're so concerned about this fleet getting shut down, the fleet having a significant impact made on them, that they would go to the powers that be above them and ask for some actual changes so that they can prove what they're saying is true if they do have an issue with what's going on with you know hatcheries being done internationally then i don't i can't say they're not but why aren't they making a larger impact a larger stink towards their representatives or whoever is helping making these guiding decisions in foreign countries. You know, it is a global issue and it's becoming more and more apparent that you can't manage the fisheries from a single country. Yes. The exclusive economic zone 200 miles out from the United States is the United States territory, but it's becoming increasingly more obvious that fish don't care about lines. They don't care about your boundaries. They don't care about any of that. They're going to go where they may, where they feel is best for them, they're going to eat what they may, they're going to impact what they may, but it is not just an issue that can be managed by a single country. When it comes to dealing with the international halibut fleet, it is the US and Canada that helps deal with that on the West Coast. So why don't we have more more people putting more input into international fleets when it comes to salmon numbers or pollock or crab harvest or things like that there may be out there and i'm just displaying my ignorance right now and i would love to be you know informed and find out more about the international fisheries management but it's not something that's easily found at least to me and it's something that should be talked about more these are issues if you know the pollock fleet decides or gets capped and all those fish aren't harvested that food's got to come from somewhere on the planet It's not as simple as saying, well, we're not taking any fish out of here, so I guess we'll just go down to the grocery store for everybody else and they'll get their food from there. That food is going somewhere. People are consuming that. Those are calories on the planet Earth that will have to be replaced with something. There are over 8 billion people on this planet now. 8 billion. They need food. They're going to eat something somewhere, and we need to figure out how we're going to feed all these people. And the pollock are a significant chunk of food for the planet. There is a large amount. I can't speak to what the total allowable catch is going to be next year, but I imagine it is going to be billions of pounds of fish. And it's something that needs to be thought of. There, there is something that needs to be done to help the Western Alaskan people. There's something that needs to be done to help feed the entire planet. Shutting the pollock fishery down doesn't seem feasible, but leaving things to the status quo is unacceptable. So that was a short episode or a long episode, short talk on my part. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to release another one of these. I'm probably going to do one on the crab because I think that's going to be an exciting chunk to, uh, it's going to end up a lot like this. A lot of people bickering back and forth, a lot of heated feelings, a lot of people desperate for their livelihoods to stay out there and others desperate to help protect the future livelihoods of others. So. Thank you very much for listening to another episode of The Observer Station. I'm signing out and have happy holidays and you next time.